You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 16. Welcome, everybody. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing how to close the employee engagement gap with Dr. Kurt Nelson. We'll be covering the four drive model to creating an engaged workforce, the power of framing in conversations, and some of the biggest mistakes that leaders make regarding motivation, and much, much more. Leadership is about vision. It's about creating a vision and sharing that vision with others in a way that inspires them to walk with you towards its fulfillment. Along the way, leaders encourage, motivate, guide, and even challenge people to bring their best each and every day. And it's all done through conversations. That's what this show is about. Better conversations for better leaders. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Kurt Nelson. Kurt is an applied behavioral scientist, the president and founder of The Lantern Group. He's also a sought-after speaker and recognized leader in human motivation and behavior change. For over 20 years, Kurt has worked with global companies to apply behavioral science principles to drive change in their organizations. Welcome to the show, Kurt. Oh, thank you, John. Appreciate it. Well, I wanted to start out by asking you, why is it that you think that, as you say, Well, that's uh, that's actually a, a, a study from Gallup. So Gallup has has looked out. They do a engagement study every year, and and over the years, it has pretty much been around eighty five, between seventy five, eighty five percent. And I think it's really interesting because of uh, you would think with all of the focus that we have had as organizations, as leaders within organizations on employee engagement, uh, particularly over the past 10 years, that that number would have changed. And at least according to Gallup, it hasn't yet. So So it sounds like that's been consistent for quite a long time. And I imagine with the clients that you consult with, that you're able to move that needle and create engagement, that that's part of the intention there. Well, it's part of the intention. So I think, again, the engagement gap, uh, as as we call it, is often because people don't feel uh, psychologically connected to the organization. So there's this aspect where what they're bringing to the table, what the company is bringing to the table, and what the employee is, is bringing to the table, they don't match up. And so oftentimes what we see is, you know, companies trying to increase that engagement by saying, hey, we need to pay these people more, we need to do so, a bunch of these extrinsic motivational aspects, which do help. I'm not going to say that they don't. They, there are strong research that shows that increases motivation and increases uh, you know, engagement, at least for a short point, uh, short term. However, uh, there's a number of intrinsic motivators, intrinsic ed- ed- engagement aspects of this that are not necessarily part of organizations' typical repertoire, right? And so it's looking at understanding what is the purpose of the company and how does that align with what the individual employees are doing? How are we collaborating? What is that element of being feeling like we're bonding and belonging and part of a team, part of a group that has not only a shared value going forward, but it has my back if something were to to befall on me. So there's a number of those types of factors that companies, I think, are missing in how they're approaching some of the aspects around engagement. So the pay is one thing, but it also sounds like being part of something bigger 
is what really taps into the intrinsic motivation that we have to connect to a larger community and have meaning and purpose in our life. Is that what I'm hearing? You you nailed that. So there's this aspect. Um, so there's been lots of studies on uh, pay, right, and, and the amount of pay. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, having a higher salary and various different things aren't motivating. And for some people, that's a definitely driver for what they want to be doing. Um, but for most people that after a certain part where uh, they feel reasonably comfortable and secure and they're able to to afford the things that they want to have in their life, um, adding another five, ten thousand dollars onto their salary uh, isn't really going to move the needle that much, right? It's not going to be a significant driver of their engagement. Having though uh, an alignment with the purpose of the organization and having work that they find challenging and um, novel, in other words. Uh, there's a model that I use often with companies. It's called the four drive model. It was developed by uh, Paul Lawrence and, and uh, Noria from Harvard. It's been around for probably about 18 years. We've been working with it for about 14 years. Uh, and it, it basically says there are four underlying drives for employee motivation slash engagement. Uh, and, and one of those, the first one, and it's ABCD model. So you can see when I, when I say the four drives, it's easy to remember. Uh, the first one is acquire and achieve. So it's, it's the things, right? I'm, I'm driven to acquire. Uh, that's my base pay, bonuses, salary titles, all of those types of things. And that's a big piece. It's, it's part of this aspect of, of having people motivated. But that is what I think companies tend to focus in on. But they miss these other three. And, and the other three are the sense of bonding and belonging. So that's the B one, right? You, you, you want to feel we're social creatures. We want to feel like we uh, have a relationship, a positive relationship with those people that we work with, right? We want to feel like we're bonding with them. Uh, the third one is challenge and comprehend. It's this idea that uh, to be motivated, we, we like to be challenged, right? We, I use this as my video game example, right? If you had a video game and you, you know, were working at it and you got to level two um, and level two didn't get any harder, any more difficult than level one, you probably wouldn't be playing that. And level three was the same and level four. So you, all of a sudden you mastered level one, you know, you wouldn't be going on to level two and level three, level four. It'd be pretty boring after a while, right? We want that challenge. We want that. We need to feel like we're, we're learning and we're, we're growing and those different pieces of it. And then the last one is define and defend. Uh, and this one's a little bit harder to, to kind of wrap our heads around, but uh, the authors talked about this as being, we used to be tribal. We lived in these tribes and we would defend the tribe. Um, we don't have tribes today, but you know, organizations can be a surrogate tribe. And so what we end up doing is we, if we align with our purpose, our def definition of who we are and what we are, along with the vision and values of the, of the organization and those align, then that's, that becomes our tribe. And so we're going to defend that tribe against outward threats. And so those are some of the things that allow us to really increase and engage people and motivate them much more holistically and fully than if we're just looking at a single attribute, whether that be pay or bonus or promotion. That's fantastic. And one, I'm so glad it's alphabetical <laughs> and in order. That's brilliant. And it makes it really easy to remember. And I'm also wondering, when you say the promotion aspect, the external thing, the carrot of the salary bump as an external motivator, 
And I've heard this a long time ago, and I want to see if there's any truth to it. This idea that people will stay at a job where there's more recognition versus pay. And I'm wondering if that's true and or do these other four drives supersede that idea? No, I think it's the they're all in combination. So recognition is huge. And there is lots of really good research out there that shows that organizations that don't recognize their employees well um, have higher turnover, that they do have significant lower uh, aspects of engagement. And, and recognition can be a number. It can be a formal recognition program. It can be, you know, your rep of the month. You are, you know, whatever that would be. But mostly what we're talking about when we think about recognition is this concept of, hey, you know, I really think that you, John, I saw what you did last week and that was fantastic. Thank you so much for that, uh, either in a handwritten note or just in front of the team. But it's that that positive acknowledgement for work well done. And then with that recognition, you talk about promotion. Promotion is a big piece. And it is uh, in, in the research that in, in the companies that I work with, we do a lot of uh, interviews with employees and surveys and various different pieces. Promotion is always one of the big things. I'm working with a company right now, and part of this coronavirus aspect that we're doing, we're looking at their incentive plans and the recognition programs that they have going on, and we're trying to figure out how to make those fair given the various aspects of everything coronavirus and some areas opening up sooner than others. But one of the biggest concerns that the field has is that from a promotion perspective, they need to win one of these awards in order to be eligible for promotion. And so this idea of how are they going to make sure that those recognition still happens in a fair manner isn't just about the recognition and they get some pretty nice rewards along with the recognition, but that's not what people are concerned about. What they're concerned about is this will impact my ability to be promoted. And so it has a very strong correlation to how people and, and to the retention aspects of a company. There's a career progression, that career ladder is one of the things that we also talk with companies about all the time, because if, if people don't feel like they can move forward, there's an aspect in behavioral science called the progress principle, uh, Teresa Amelie, uh uh, is the one of the researchers on this. And it says that, wow, we are really motivated when we see that we're progressing. And, and that can be on a project, it can be daily, and we get really demotivated when we feel like we're stalled or we actually move backwards a little bit. And mm. it's very disheartening for those employees when working on a project and you're working really hard and it's moving forward and all of a sudden, you know, for no reason, the, the project gets stalled or gets, you know, put on hiatus. All of those things can be really disheartening and demotivating for people. I saw some research on passwords when you're signing up for a website, and they found that if they give you that progress bar, like if your password is weak, strong, or excellent, that people actually had longer passwords if you gave them that encouragement along the way. And I can see that in career, that if you really take a step back, that this is all going to go back into the identity of who you are and the intrinsic motivations that you're talking about. So if a leader is not engaging in the formal as well as the informal recognition systems in the context of the four drive model that you identified, what is the real cost of having a disengaged workforce? 
Yeah, it's really interesting um, because you go, all right, so what doesn't matter if my employees are engaged or not engaged that, you know, they're still doing their job, right? But there's this element of being psychologically unattached to the company. And what that means is a number, that impacts a number of different factors. One of those factors is, as we kind of mentioned before, retention, right? So are you more likely to leave the company? And we know how much that costs, right? Uh, Somebody leaving, particularly if they're a decent employee about how they do their job, can cost a lot in order to get somebody new and to train them and, and all of the aspects that go along with that. But I think even more importantly with that is there are a number of times where, you know, as as employees, we go above and beyond. If we are psychologically engaged, then we are more likely to, you know, go above and beyond, work those extra hours on that Friday night because I got to get, you know what, it's expected to get this done versus cutting out maybe a little bit early on Friday to just go because I'm not really engaged and I don't really care. I, I, I did the bare necessity for what I had to do. Um, and I, I don't need to do any more because my job is, you know, just my job and I don't feel an engagement with it. So there are a number of those productivity measures that really can be impacted by how we are engaged or not engaged. You know, just thinking back to what you said about the four drive model, the D in the four drive model, is that one of the bigger ones? I know they're all important, but when you identify with a tribe, and this is who I am, it seems like that would be potentially the most important one. Is that right? Yeah. So the research that they've shown on this is that, you know, you, you can't look at these in isolation, really. I mean, any imp- a 1% kind of improvement on a, on a rating score. So if you were rating each of these on a 1 to 100 scale, and, and then overall as a company, we rate 72 on, on acquire and achieve, 68 on et cetera. Any 1% improvement from a company um, on on any one single individual piece uh, gets about a three to four percent increase in productivity. Okay, so not bad, right? That you still that's a pretty good return. However, if you get a one percent increase across all four of them, um, the research has shown that you get about a thirty to thirty five percent increase. So it's it's awesome. really a multiplicative aspect. And and part of that, and this is, I, I don't necessarily have the research to back this up, but my hypothesis on that is that we tend to focus in on the things that we feel we're lacking, we're missing, right? So um, if all of a sudden we're doing really, the company's doing really well overall on, on acquire and achieve, um, now what becomes more salient to me is this I sense of bonding or belonging or the sense that I don't feel like I'm, I'm aligned with my purpose. And so whatever is the lowest one of those ratings is the one that is going to get the most focus from people. So to that, though, I will say that I think the D drive is often one that companies don't focus in on that they don't understand the connection. And so they're not doing the things that can help people feel like that drive is being satisfied. So for instance, um, making sure you communicate what how, how your vision is and really working at understanding. So how is um, you know, Joe in accounting uh, uh, aligning his or her job with you know, what our overall corporate strategy is? It's kind of that making sure that you're looking at that bigger picture and making sure that people understand how they fit into that picture. Um, 
and again, you can go back. That's I, who knows if this is true, but it's that old John Kennedy when he went to um, Cape Canaveral and he talked to the you know the janitor and asked the janitor what his job was, and he goes, "I'm getting a man to the moon." You know, he was a janitor, um, but he had bought into this idea that he was part of this team that was getting a man to to land on the moon. Um, and that's at a janitor level. And if you can get the entire organization to be having that same kind of commitment, that same ideal of what they're doing, you think about what that can do for an organization in, in the long run. So that's awesome. And this is really exciting because it sounds like the tools to help facilitate and create engagement and shape that culture are really plentiful. And there's lots of choices out there. What do you think? is the barrier to people using that? Is it an awareness issue? Yeah, I think awareness is a big aspect of it. I think uh, it's just an uncomfortableness too of of leaders because some of the stuff is, it's more of the softer side of things, right? It's, it's saying, yes, we need to feel like we can bond and belong at work, which means sometimes it's like, uh, you know, allowing chit chat and just kind of, you know, talking around the water cooler kind of things or creating these opportunities uh, for people to engage. And that's not necessarily why people have gotten promoted, right? You get promoted for other aspects of being, you know, focused on productive productivity, all of those other aspects. And so uh, the people that tend to rise up in an organization, just personality wise, this isn't always true. I, I don't want to paint up too broad of a picture here, right? Everybody uh, doesn't matter. You're not just a type A personality or the only types that get into, you know, a senior leadership position, but oftentimes they're more prevalent uh, in those types of situations. So it's not necessarily a natural tendency for people to do that. It's also given the short-term focus of things. Some of these are long-term type implications, right? It's how we, we do it. And then I just think that even though we have a lot of tools, um, you know, one of the things that we don't understand, this is the thing I think that behavioral science that I kind of focus in on is this concept that we're humans and as humans, we're emotional creatures. And, you know, we put programs and processes in place that are very rational. We think about it from our prefrontal cortex, this system two thinking. Daniel Kahneman talks about system one thinking versus system two thinking. System one is really quick, your gut kind of reaction. System two is your more rational thinking through. When you think of a math problem, it's a, it's a system two thinking. When you think about if you how you look at a, a picture or painting and how you feel, that's usually system one. Um, and we, in business, we tend to put processes and programs in place based on our system two thinking and that rational system thinking. But as humans, vast majority of our response and the way that we, we show up is based on system one, that emotional gut feel, that initial response. And so they don't always, it's not saying that they're contradictory and they overlap a lot, but sometimes we put those, those more cognitive programs in place and we don't take into account that we're humans and we have this emotional response. And so they fall short, they fall flat. Um, and we need to better understand why people do what they do, why they think how they think. And if we can better understand that, then we can hopefully make systems and processes and programs that are going to be more relevant and more engaging for uh, employees. So if they're doing that kind of work, they're developing the awareness and the skills and really paying attention because this is going to take a lot of time of energy to implement these ideas. Exactly. How do you know 
assuming they put that energy in, how do they know if it's a corporate culture issue versus a leadership issue per se? That's a big question, right? That's a really <laughs> good question. Uh, and and this gets into, you know, some of this is an art versus a science. And some of this is just really being uh, aware of of how we're showing up either ourselves. So if you're saying, is it is it a cultural issue or is it a leadership as, as a leader? Am I the one who is, is really doing this? Um, culture is, is an interesting thing because culture kind of has is this, uh, helps guide, you know, the way that a company thinks and the behaviors that the employees, what they view as this is, this is the norm for this company. This is, this is allowed, or this is encouraged, and this is discouraged. This is, this is, or not allowed. Those are those cultural norms that, that we have within an organization. And those are driven a lot by senior leaders and how they talk and how they convey their messages. Are they, are they talking about a potential future? Are they talking about um, what could be in the possibilities? Or are they talking about we need to cut you know, numbers or expenses now and, and the, the language that is used? Uh, and so a lot of that culture uh, and those individual aspects that you say are intertwined. And so you end up, you know, can you, can you disassociate culture from an individual level perspective? Sometimes you can. Sometimes they're really inter interwoven together, so it makes that more difficult. Um, but you know, there's not really a steadfast. You know, this is eighty percent culture, twenty percent individual uh, ability that you can just run a test and be able to do that. It's more of being able to go in there and understand the holistic aspect of the organization and say, you know, here are some of the actions that you're doing that are probably driving some of this lack of engagement or whatever else that it is and that are that's influencing your culture as a whole and if we can change those things we can change this culture but then some of the other underlying cultural things that are probably influencing how you're doing things and so it's a it's a yin yang aspect of it i would have to say the art of it i love it and coming from a scientist that's really awesome to hear <laughs> can you talk can you talk a little bit about what you refer to in terms of friction and how that uh, impacts the company. Yeah, so we use the term friction. Roger Dooley wrote a book actually just recently called Friction. He's a, a neuroscience marketer. Uh, and, and he talks about friction in a number of different ways about it's these little things that impede us from uh, being as efficient or as effective as we could. And he talks a lot about, you know, websites and, you know, if you have to click twice versus just one click, the number of people that drop off after that, that's a point of friction. Uh, when, when we talk about friction, though, inside of an organization, what we're talking about is both these procedural pieces. So if I have a job and I have to do eight steps when really three of those steps are you know, they, they were put in place at one point for some reason, but they no longer really have any value. Um, that's, that's some friction, right? It's adding time, it's adding effort. Uh, those have an emotional as well as a productivity gain for people. But there's also so, um, social friction. So it goes back to some of the cultural aspects, right? There are under, there are unwritten rules of behavior and how we do things. And sometimes those social aspects of, of work can impede not only you know our productivity but how we think about things you know and i'll use the the most common kind of uh 
aspect that people talk about all the time. It's like, well, we can't, we can't, we tried that before, right? And, and it didn't work. Well, all right, that's a mindset, um, but it's a frictional mindset because it causes people to not be able to really look and, and think creatively about aspects or to be so stuck in the status quo uh, and, the, and the way that we're currently doing things to, to break out of that box. And so we go in and we'll do a diagnostic within organizations to look both at some of the procedural aspects, but also some of those social aspects to try to ascertain what are some of those mindsets that are coming in place that can impede a company from trying to achieve the strategy or the, the vision that they have in place for themselves. The unwritten rules of the culture, that's brilliantly said. You know, that's exactly what it is. No one talks about it. It's not in the manual, but that's the way it's done. So is social pressure and social proof, how how do those ideas come into play? Uh, so actually, if I'm, I'm going to get a little geeky on you here. I apologize. I, I'll get my, my, my scientist hat on. Um, so in, in sociology, they, they talk about social norms. And, and there's two different types. Actually, there's, there's more than that. But two main types of, of social norms. There's, there's normative norms, which are the things that as a society that we, we think we ought to be doing or that people, you know, this is the, the element of you should not smoke. Right. Uh, that's a maybe it could be a, that's a norm that maybe your culture or whatever has. Uh, and then there's descriptive norms and descriptive norms are, are, yeah, we know we're not supposed to smoke. But you know what? I, I believe that most people or there's a lot of people that do smoke. Right. And so um, what we see is that from a behavior change perspective, descriptive norms actually are more impactful on people's behavior than normative norms. So those things that you should be doing are great and they, they do help, but it is the descriptive norms that are actually driving kind of this aspect. So social proof is this aspect of saying, um, what are most people doing? And when we see within a company, all right, so, and I'll use a, an example of, wow, you know, most people are cheating a little bit on their expense reports, right? Okay, so if ever, if most people now the the norm or the or the the normative aspect of that is we should not cheat at all, right? But hey, you know, I don't have I I I I, I forgot that one receipt, so I'm just going to add you know three dollar tip to this that I didn't really give a three dollar tip to. I'm not going too far above, but I'm not you know I'm not really. You know, in your head, you can rationalize that away and you can you can do that. And that's a descriptive because you're going, I believe everybody else is doing that. Um, and you don't even have to see it, but you can believe that. And that's a that's a that's an aspect of it. Um, and so those are the things that are driving a lot of the behaviors within an organization. And so when you think about uh, those those types of norms, uh, that's what can be influence uh corporate culture, corporate, you know, ways of responding, all those types of things. What would you want leaders to understand in terms of the power of social proof and really how to use it? Well, one of the things that, yeah, no, it's a really great, great question because we often have unintended leaders, particularly there are unintended consequences to the way that they talk about something. 
and I will use this example. It's not mine, and I and I actually don't even remember where I heard this from. So uh, if if anybody out there, if I'm stealing your <laughs> your your story, I apologize and and um, contact me, and I'll I'll make sure I attribute it to you moving forward. Um, but there was a a company that was was working on trying to get more people to sign up for their 401k plan. Right? They it was it was a very positive aspect. They're going, hey, look, let's get more people. You know, because the company offered a nice match, and from a savings perspective, they wanted their their employees to have a long term benefit of a of a nice retirement. And various different pieces. Um, and so they were putting this whole thing together and they had, they, they rebranded things, they redid all of this. And then they had the president of the company come up on stage in front of everybody and talk about this. And the president started off and he went off speech or off, off script. And he started talking about, and there's only 20 some percent of you who are actually, you know, maximizing out your 401k plan. And that's just not acceptable. We need to make sure that you are, you know, you're doing this and we got all the stuff in here. And while he probably thought that that was a really good message, um, they were really smart. And afterwards, they, they kind of started asking and talking. And the, the unintended consequence of that is people go, wow, only 20 percent of the people are actually doing a full match. That means eighty percent of people aren't. Well, I I don't feel so bad now. I'm I'm I don't have a full match, but you know most people don't as well. So it's those unintended consequences of the language that we use can really influence how people perceive those social norms and the that social proof. So you have to be intentional and you have to understand how your language can impact that. Um, and so again, you asked about leaders and what they, they need to know. One is just utilize it appropriately. So, you know, if you are seeing positive things that most people are doing, but you have a smaller percentage of the people that aren't, that are just aren't on the bandwagon, use social proof to help and, and, and convince those people to get them, them moving forward. But then also be really concerned um, and cautious when you're using things where, just like the example that I used, that if you're trying to get many people to do something, you might want to use more of a normative uh, descriptor as opposed to uh, a normative uh, message as opposed to a descriptive message on that. So that was a great example of the normative versus descriptive and the backfiring that it can occur. Yeah. And I love this idea. And the application is immediately applicable everywhere. And it also brings us to framing. Yes. How you frame things in your one-on-one, in your one-to-many conversations that you have. Is there anything that you want to share about framing and how leaders should communicate things to people to bring in motivation and intrinsic desire and those types of things? I'm going to bring in a couple different pieces here. Yes. Uh, although I will have to say that all of this, right, is is very nuanced and contextually based. And so uh, I, I might say an example here and and, and somebody might go, oh, well, so we should always use a, a, a loss of frame as opposed to a gain frame. And that's not what I'm saying at all. But, but let me use one example. And it's an example I've used for years. There was some research done. They are trying to get uh, college students to uh, register for a class early by August 1st, right? And so they put in uh, a 15% discount um, it, if you registered before before August 1st. But what they did is a really interesting study. So half the people got an email that said, if you register before August 1st, you get a 15% discount on your tuition. 
And then for half of the other group, they had the, uh, if you register after August 1st, you'll have a 15% penalty for registering. Same exact costs should make absolutely no difference in the number of people, right? From a classical economic perspective, if you did the, the math, doesn't matter. However, when they found out, what they found is that, and don't quote me on the, the actual numbers here, but about 92% of the people that got the uh, penalty message registered early versus 66, 67% who got the discount message. So that, that loss message, this, which goes back to loss aversion, which is a behavioral science principle, says we tend to uh, feel the pain of a loss twice as much as an equivalent gain. So if I lose $100, that is twice as painful as if I found $100 on you know, the, the street. Um, and, and so you can use that from a framing perspective. Um, but I will say that, and then, you know, again, you go back and you go, well, all right, so I should always use a, a negative loss message when I'm trying to convince people to do something. And, and that's not always the case because depending upon the culture within the organization, a, a negative messaging can double down on people's fears and you can get into analysis or paralysis within that. And so then they don't move. So uh, I wish there was an easy answer on framing, but framing is very important. That's the one message I will have is, <laughs> is making sure that you very consciously think about how you are framing something uh, and take that into account and do some research on framing uh, and, and understand what framing, the different ways that you can frame something and how that can impact how people are responding to it. So the behavior that you get uh, can be very different just on the way that you structure something. And I've heard for a long time, this idea of loss aversion, that people will do more to avoid pain than to experience pleasure. And this carrot and stick metaphor that comes from psychology, is that appropriate? Or is it antiquated? Or are we really that simple pain and pleasure? Well, there, there is that I will say that the the element of of pain, though, like, a, you know, if you you have these threats, they're very, they can be very um, powerful motivators, right? If you don't do this, you're going to get fired. Uh, I, well, I will do that, right? Um, but that is a very extrinsic um, tool to use. And as soon as you take that um, penalty away, uh, it, it does not tend to, uh, the research that I've seen it show, shows that once you take that penalty away, that behavior it immediately goes back to um, the old ways. And so you constantly have to have those threats in place. And it, we talked about culture earlier and these thoughts of engagement, right? It does not engender engagement and it does not create a positive culture uh, within the way it actually lends itself to when you have those penalties, you feel like you're being controlled. And as humans, we don't like... Uh, that our sense of autonomy, that our sense of control is being dictated by others. Um, and so we will, we will push back. We have a thing called reactance, where when our personal freedom is being um, challenged, we will push back on it. And I always use the, it's a silly example, but um, I had some dental work done a long time ago. And as part of that, for like two weeks, I couldn't eat caramels and popcorn and different things like that. And I'm not really a big popcorn or caramel person uh, to begin with, but because I knew I couldn't, 
oh my gosh, I wanted to eat that caramel and the popcorn. <laughs> it was like this big craving for me, it, but that was really reactance. It was because I couldn't, therefore I wanted to do it. Um, and so uh, it's those things of like, people will go above and beyond then to kind of find ways around the system and to to game the system when you're trying to restrict them from doing things. Um, so it's a long-winded answer to say carrot and stick. Yes, the, the stick does work, but you better be really careful in how you use it because of all of the unintended consequences that that can bring. Well, one of the things that I'm getting right now is certainly like you mentioned earlier, it's nuanced. It's not going to be a one size fits all. It's going to be subtleties based on the culture, the relationship, the individual, the larger mission of the company. So to kind of try to put it all together here, at least on the elements that we've talked about so far. So we know that the stick can work in the short term. Of course, we also need to bring in the carrot. We need to consider the four drive model, the ABCD model, as well as utilize social proof to highlight positive behaviors within overall corporate culture and context. This has got to be really fun for you. What is the favorite thing that you get to do or favorite aspect of what you do as a consultant? Yeah, I mean, the, no two clients, no two engagements are ever the same. And I think that is really, so I'll, I'll go back to uh, the four drive model, the ABCD model, right? And and I am driven, again, we all have different personality aspects. And so we all have different motivational profiles as well. I know for me, part of that is challenge, right? And so it's this idea of being challenged and, and being able to figure something out and to be able to, to, to do that. So when I get a, a client and they have a unique challenge and we're given the opportunity to come in and really dig in and come up with some solutions that may not be just the standard solution and really pushing us to go above and beyond, I love those. And they may be crazy in the moment but you know when you get it and you go oh we can do this and if we do this this will actually impact this broader scale and wow if we actually make these changes over here uh, we can really impact not just this team but the entire company and those are fantastic when you do that and you get to see the result it's a just a, a wonderful feeling so the C part of the four drive model, the challenge, as well as being part of something bigger than yourself, it sounds like that's a pretty big drive for you. So that's your motivation. Are there any mistakes that you commonly see with leaders that they try to do when they're trying to motivate their team that actually backfires? You know, where where I see, again, is that they they only use one or two motivational levers. So, and, and most of the time those have to deal with uh, pay or some sort of award or something along that line, some extrinsic motivational piece. And they, they, they just forego this idea of all the intrinsic motivational levers, right? And, and I'm not saying to, to not use extrinsic motivation. Those are, those are key, they're part of this mix. But it is a mix, and you should be thinking about, you know, how do you create jobs that provide a challenge, that provide maybe some some novelty, some unique aspect where you get to learn something new. Um, even one, you know, one of the hardest work things that we had to do, we worked with a manufacturing company uh, and their plant, and the guys on the on the plant floor, you know, one ran this press, and basically his his job all day 
was pulling a lever down a piece of metal, taking the lever, the metal and moving on to the next spot, putting a new piece of lever, pulling a press. I mean, that's what he did for eight hours a day without his breaks. Um, and so how do you add some challenge into that? Well, we talked to them and they started doing job rotation and they started doing various different things. So the press operator got to train somebody new in on that, and then he got trained on another aspect. And so not only did that help in keeping people kind of, hey, new stuff is in learning, but it also allowed them to, uh, when somebody was sick, they now had people trained in on all of these different aspects. And you go, well, that seems a pretty simple fix. And, and in reality, it was. And why weren't they already doing that? Um, but they weren't. And so those are some of those simple things that you can think about in, in just doing that around creating bonds and belonging, connecting back to that purpose and that vision um, and, and, and creating some of those aspects. But it's probably some of that historical inertia that keeps them in that box. And you get to come in as an outsider and really assess what's going on and ask new questions going through divergent thinking. It's really interesting because, you know, this is one of the aspects from individuals that we know is that we don't understand our own motivations very well. And so there's this aspect in behavioral science called the say-do gap, right? What we say we're going to do and what we actually do are, are often very different. Um, and there are two different psychological processes. Scott Jeffrey uh, was a researcher that talked a lot about that and has, has shown that. I think organizations are the same way, right? And so we don't really, as if you're trying to analyze yourself, you're so embedded in the culture that sometimes culture is invisible and you can't see it. Uh, you're so stuck, as you said, in those uh, status quo of the way that things have always be, been done that you don't notice um, that there may even be other ways of doing things or some of the, the behaviors that you're constantly doing, they're, they're just so routine that you don't even see them. Um, and those are really, as you said, having an outside perspective can really help in being able to just identify some of those. And, and beyond, even beyond that, um, you know, that in itself is great, but then coming in and saying, here's some other ways of potentially doing something and thinking about things uh, can also just spur new ways of thinking and, and creativity around that. Is there a project that you've worked on in your career that has really been perhaps the most rewarding? Oh, man. Um, there's There's been a few. I mean, I think, again, some of them have been, you know, uh, worked with a large pharmaceutical company, uh, and they were having significant, uh, their uh, culture, their, their strategy had changed um, as an organization. They were trying to be more collaborative and various different things, and yet their reward program, their reward system was still the same one that they'd been using for 10 years. And so uh, we got to go in and work with that company really at up at the C-level suite of redoing their, their rewards and bringing in a behavioral science perspective into the organization as well. So that they not only were we looking at the incentives and the recognition and being able to really make that so that it was more appropriate and aligned with their strategy, but we were also getting the senior executives in one of my favorite conversations was talking with the CFO and who was, you know, 
I got it. Show me the, show me the the numbers and and everything else. And we're talking about people's emotions and their psychological process, you know, thinking. And and he's just dis- discounting it all. And ended up, you know, having an hour long conversation. And then he had to leave. And then I'd get, you know, he said, but I'm available at at five thirty six o'clock at night. So we went in that after that night and had another hour and a half, two hour conversation with him. And at the end, he became one of our biggest advocates because he understood that, you know, people's emotions actually matter to the bottom line, that it isn't just, <laughs> you know, pay them X more and they're going to do X, uh, you know, X amount more in, in productivity. No, that their mindset actually has a big impact on it. So those are some of the more rewarding ones when I, when I think about Kurt, thank you so much for spending time with us today. What is the best way for people to find out more about what you do and to stay connected? Yeah, so obviously you can uh, check out the website, lanterngroup.com. Um, I can, I'm on Twitter, and so you can contact me at, at what motivates uh, is my Twitter handle. And then, uh, you know, I do have a, a podcast uh, with co-host Tim, Tim Hulahan called Behavioral Grooves. So you can go to the, the website, www behavioral grooves or you can just find that on whatever pod service that you're listening to this on because we're on all of them as well and we we talk behavioral science the application of behavioral science to to work and life and so we talk to some of the top top behavioral scientists in the world as well as practitioners who are using behavioral science in their jobs and so we try to highlight some of those key concepts and aspects of that and so it's a I, we try to laugh and have fun with it and, and do all sorts of things. Awesome. Definitely check out his podcast. And again, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, John. I appreciate this. It was great fun. To connect with Kurt, again, go ahead and check out lanterngroup.com. You can find him on Twitter at What Motivates or on his podcast, Behavioral Grooves. Links are in the show notes. Until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. And I'd love to stay connected. Of course, go ahead and like and subscribe to the show if you haven't already done so. And you can connect with me on Twitter at Key Combo and on LinkedIn under John Ryan Training.